Hi, my name's Paul McVeigh. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Markham, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Paul McVeigh. Uh, yeah, uh, so my name's Paul McVeigh. I'm a expert in elite performance in 2020. If you go back a few years, I was a Premier League footballer and also an international footballer and have arrived in England in 1994 whenever I joined Tottenham Hotspur and that took me all the way through to 2010 uh, nearly 20 years in professional football which was an amazing experience and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a bit later on. And then over the last 10 years or so, I've been working with companies and organizations, helping them improve their mental performance, which in my opinion is probably the, the most important facet of performance to improve their bottom line. I'm joined, as is the usual custom, by Ant and Ryan, the two fellas, the two sexy chaps. How are we, boys? Ant, you're looking particularly dashing this morning. Oh, thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, don't really get those type of compliments, but yeah, no, that's taking me up a little bit. You should do more. I'll, I'll remember. Yeah. I'll make a note of that. Call Ant sexy more. That's my <laughs> new sort of sort of day, daily uh, allowance. Ryan, you aren't on camera, but I can imagine you were also looking dashing this morning, mate. How are we? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, mate. Apart from as mentioned, I'm sat on a very uncomfortable chair in a room and don't normally record these in, so. Yeah, as the episode goes on, I might grow a bit weary as my legs <laughs> buckle from underneath me on this tiny chair that I'm sat on. That's fine. As long as you're not there under duress, then then you know we'll we'll be comfortable to continue. So let's get on with today's episode. Today's opening question. Last week we were given the first high resolution color images of Mars via NASA's Perseverance rover. If NASA encountered an alien life form during this mission. And you were tasked with explaining why you believe football is the greatest sport on earth by showing that newly discovered species one football match from history. Which match would it be and why? And I'm going to come to you first. Um, Stoke versus Bit. No, I'm only missing. Um, <laughs> the, there's, there's probably plenty that you could show. Um, I, I did kind of think that you've got to, you've got to go for like the high scoring games, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're great for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I think. Sound like Jose Mourinho. I think, yeah. I think I'm, there's just not enough defence. Uh, I think I'm gonna go with um, when South Korea beat Italy. Okay. And it's because that stadium is full of South Koreans going absolutely <laughs> crazy, and there's all sorts of palaver going on regarding handballs and stuff. And I think if you're gonna show a an alien who didn't really understand football. That football was really, really good to watch. <laughs> It'd be that game. Uh, did we? Um, did very we, exciting. 
did we talk to Rob Warner about was that the game where the the defender pulls on the shirt and that's why they missed the header or something and that's Rob Warner was saying that they built that into the design of the kit for the next World Cup, which Italy won. Yeah, yeah. Look at that! It all comes yeah. full circle on this. Hey, on that, the, that South Korea team. I mean, like they had that like fluorescent like pink kit. Yeah, <laughs> stood out a mile away. <laughs> they were like, we're, "We're only going to get one go. We're having a World Cup, so here's the kit." Get to the semi-final or something like that. Get to the semi yeah, against yeah. Germany, and it's like. It's it's so like not really appreciated at all. No. It was absolutely rogue, wasn't it? The I finalists, think... the finalists were Brazil and Germany. I know. And then... I, feel, I feel like people didn't realise South Koreans even played football until that World Cup, and then oh, he just got amazing. to the semi-final. The referees certainly helped, though, didn't he? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there was a few incidents. Yeah, um, I think the guy who scored got sacked from from his club in Italy. Yeah, he, he did. did. Yeah. yeah. Which was a uh, lovely good. story, that. Great, yeah. great. We see the football family coming together once again. <laughs> they take it well, the Italians, when they lose them. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryan, if you had to show an alien life form a football match to tell them why it was the greatest sport on earth, what would it be? Probably just show them a cricket match. That would encourage yeah. them to watch something else, wouldn't it? Well, it'd stop an invasion, wouldn't it? It'd well, uh, quite. Any... The other way. Um... <laughs> Venus, it is, lads. <laughs> <laughs> No, I had a similar thought process uh, to answer. I kind of thought, oh, what are the high-scoring games? And then I thought, no, it's not really about that. And I went for Watford versus Leicester when Deeney scores following the penalty missed. Yeah. And I just thought that carnage in that last 25 seconds, or whatever it is, would be enough to make you fall in love with the sport. Even if you didn't know the rules, you'd just be like, what is going on here? <laughs> and how do I get more of it? <laughs> Why is there now loads of people on the pitch? Why is Gianfranco Zola on the floor? <laughs> What is a jump it, it, the only uh, it's the only time I've been happy of a pitch invasion. I don't really like them, to be honest. Yeah, I'm with you it's on that. A bit one. rubbish, but that was like just. I think if they're spontaneous, like no one knows what to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. I mean, the, plot. the fact he died for the penalty as well. Yeah, it just makes it so much better. Like if that was a Stonewall penalty, it'd still be amazing. But the fact he, it was just like so much poetic justice in like one sweeping counter attack, just amazing. When um, Jamie Vardy and Harry Kane both on the bench for Leicester that day. Yeah. <laughs> what wasn't weird... Marvez playing as well? Um, yeah, he um, was, because he got promoted yeah. with them. I think he was... The year before they went up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went yeah. up, they won the Unless league. Unless he came up the year... I remember they bought him in a January, so it depends which January they bought him in. Yeah. Um, but it was knockout who missed the penalty, wasn't it? Yeah. Actually... Famous championship promotion expert Anthony Knockhart. Yeah, Mama um, Lamuni was in goal as well, which is he was. Weird. Just the fact that he didn't have Marvez, I've got to start getting things right on this podcast. That's well, really yeah. just been chatting nonsense. Just the last few weeks. <laughs> Question mark. Um, I went for uh, a relatively high-scoring match: Spain three, Portugal three in the last World Cup. I just remember, I don't know whether it was just my viewing experience, but I remember, I think it was a Friday evening, and I, I remember coming home from work to watch it, and I, I think I watched it in bed, and I just remember I I was drinking some lime beer as well, which was great. It was just, it was just having a fruity day, and uh, 
match just had everything. Just absolutely. Do you remember that Nacho goal when he just like oh. Alexander Ford just spun it into the bottom corner? Yeah. There was a move that Spain put together where it was just outrageous, and then Isco absolutely smashes it off the bar. Um, there was a De Gea mistake, which all, which seemed really weird at the time. Um, yeah, it's not now. No, and then yeah. there was that, and then you, you, at the last minute they get that free kick, and Ronaldo saying you're like, he's definitely going to score this, like he's definitely going to score, and then he just walloped it in the top corner, and there's just absolute limbs. Have you seen that video unreal. where he's uh, where they've swapped the golf noises around with the football noises? No, <laughs> it's on Twitter. So basically, there's like a video where like a, a golfer's taking a putt and he sinks it, and the crowd goes absolutely mental. They like got a football match, <laughs> and then it's like Ronaldo banging that free kick in, and it's just like a polite little round of applause. <laughs> no, I've, I've got a memory of that going down because I was in Bali with Rich, and we went for three days to stay on this tiny island called Gilly Tea. It's really, really small. There's no cars there. It's just like um, horses to carry stuff around. It's just really beautiful little island. And that was on in a bar at like three, four in the morning. And I was really drunk. I like stumbled into the last 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was just stood there next to some lad. Bearing in mind, I'm in the middle of nowhere on this tiny island. And this lad turns to me and goes, hey, lad, where are you from? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm from a place called the Wirral by, by Liverpool. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm from the Knocky, mate. Which <laughs> you all listening. There's an escape on the Wirral. And I was like... Am I that drunk or am I in the middle of nowhere and I've happened to stumble across somebody in a bar who lives about two miles away from me? There's even cars on this island and I'm just like... That happened to me in Yeah, that happened to me and Bob, yeah. didn't it, when we were in France? And that game yeah. was on in the background anyway. We, when we were in France for the Euros in 2016, we lit, like we got there and we went to this, this, this bar because we were going to the island Sweden match, so we were trying to find a bar with like island fans in it. So we get to this bar and we stood outside and uh, it's me and Pop and, and, and Rob, Pop's brother, and we're there and, and then <laughs> this lad was stood next to us talking to us and we were like, all right, mate, and he was like, yeah, where are you from? And we were like, oh, uh, the widow. And he was like, so am I. You would slam your fans. And, we were like, and he was like, do money you go to my school? Swear <laughs> 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 he was one of one of one of my cousins or something. It just just happened to be in it. It was absolutely bizarre. I like how the island is in the middle of nowhere, still as a bar, a telly, just no cars. It's great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the forty on. Yeah. The uh, the international language. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. We got Paul McVay on the show today. Uh, first protocol, Ryan. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about why we wanted to speak to to Paul and how the interview came about? Yeah, of course. We can't really lie about this, as you'll hear from the, um, the opening snippet that we we hounded him really to to come on the show. Um, <laughs> it originally came about by somebody suggesting him to us, and we managed to get his contact details and. What if you look at Paul's background, he's got a master's degree in sports psychology, as well as being an ex-pro and, and playing for Tottenham and, and Norwich and uh, in Northern Ireland and having a, just an all-round really good career. Uh, he's done a lot away from the pitch as well, uh, around a topic that obviously we discuss, discuss quite a lot. So um, it just seemed to be a perfect fit and he, he was really good value. Um, but as, as he mentions at the start, we... We, if anyone wonders how we get people on the show, it's a variety really of us approaching people, people coming to us, suggested uh, people to come on the show, and, and Paul was one that was suggested. And um, we're not shy of sending a DM or two, are we, Dan? I think that was you more than me, but I think I had his number. <laughs> I think I had his. Number. I was just, I was just WhatsApping him every time I saw he was online. I'd WhatsApp him again, just relentless WhatsApp behaviour from me. 
It's just a collection of your ex-girlfriends going, yeah, he did that to me as well. <laughs> he did that to me. He's an absolute pest. <laughs> Stop I love that. Stop collection. Out. I know, yeah, collection. <laughs> Absolute ladies, man, me. Famously a ladies, man. Um, and do you want to tell the listeners what, what the theme is for this episode? Yeah, so the theme for this week is no matter what situation you're in, we can always decide how we feel and how we are going to behave and respond. And I don't think there's too much to add to that because I think that's just very solid advice. I think a lot of people don't realise how much choice they have and how much they can affect um, the decisions and the way their life goes. So it's um, just great advice from from Paul and a a great uh, mantra to live by as well. Yeah, absolutely. He talks a lot about that in the episode, as you'll hear. And I think there's quite a lot of really interesting pieces of advice that he, that he gives. Um, some of it, some of it intentionally, some of it almost unintentionally, I think, as well, which we'll discuss after after the interview. So that's enough of us. We're going to pass you now to Paul McVeigh, and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Markin. <laughs> Um, this podcast is all about uh, male's mental health, um, and especially within football and sport in general. Could you just let our listeners know why you agreed to do an interview for Man Marking? Uh, Man Marking is, is the best way to describe the hassle that I got from you to try and make this happen. <laughs> so, like, touch tight is probably another way you could describe the Man Marking, and, and it was like trying to get a bit of space in an Italian penalty area, trying to get away from you two. Yeah, we went so we know at all, where we? Uh, <laughs> putting on the shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's 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 obviously it's a it's such an important part of of and you know take football and sport out of the equation. It's such an important part of life, and and again, just magnified in the current climate with the difficult situations that that everybody's facing with COVID and the pandemic and. And so just to multiply what was already a difficult situation, then it's definitely a really, really good thing to do to share these experiences, talk about things, things that have maybe helped me, things that might help other people that, that might come across this podcast and and can help them in their own lives. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks, Paul. And to, just to start with sort of your early childhood then, you were born and grew up in Belfast in the ni- uh, 1980s. What was it like? growing up at that period uh well i'm glad you've taken a few years off me because i was born in the 70s but that's good oh, yeah. i don't mind that's that <laughs> that would keep take me back into my 30s again but uh yeah <laughs> it was it was it was funny it was an only way i can describe it as normal and yeah. to have a normal childhood when bombs are going off all around you pretty much on a daily basis when tanks and saracens are driving down your street and you think that's normal when soldiers are walking past you pointing their rifles in your face as you're walking to school every day is just normal or that's what it was normal for kids growing up around Belfast in the 70s and 80s and 90s and because I was part of that then I would describe it as normal but of course because of my uh, my ability to play football I was very fortunately plucked from Belfast and sat down in London to go and play for Spurs in, in 1994. And suddenly I'm walking through the leafy suburbs of North London and looking along these tree-lined streets that have no tanks driving down them, no soldiers walking past me with guns and no bombs going off and thinking, okay, so maybe that growing up in that environment wasn't normal. 
So it was, it's really weird to think like that because at the time it was so normal and you only get that realization when you look back and see what you actually started off in. Do you think on, on reflection it did install a, a mental toughness and a resilience to your personality? I think it installs uh, an unbelievable amount of resilience in a community. You know, whenever you're dealing with hardships and, you know, real devastation in your community and in your family, you know, I think that's the, that is the experience that builds towards resilience. And of course, some of these experiences will build towards resilience. Other experiences that people will have won't help the resilience. It will just completely destroy and decimate people. So it, it's a very, very fine line. You know, I think if you looked at the science and the research, it will suggest that going through hardships and difficult experiences is what builds relationships. But it's a bit like, you know, pulling the elastic and then just keep stretching that elastic until eventually you stretch it too much and then it breaks. And that's very much the analogy I'd use for people. You, you know, we have a, an, an amazing ability to tolerate very challenging experiences but there's only so much that people can take. And, and I think that's probably a lot what happened whenever I was growing up. Unfortunately, I was, if I was an elastic, then it would, it meant that I kind of stayed together because I don't think that I had the, the real devastation that I saw around me. I was very, very fortunate because I didn't, you know, no one in my immediate family was killed, but to put it into context, my best friend who lived across the street, their dad was shot down. So it was all around me. It just didn't happen in my immediate family. Wow, yeah, it's it. I like that analogy you used there of, of the elastic band. It, it it made a lot of sense. Of some people can go to a certain level, but eventually there's a breaking point with everything, isn't it? And yeah, to to great way of looking at it. it. How did that move then come about to to go into Tottenham? Was the was you playing over in in Ireland and there the, the were scouts there and they took you for a trial? Well, it was actually I was asked to join a, a new team. And whenever I went up to play for this team when I was 11, my dad brought me up and, and he was standing on the side of the pitch. And on my first night of training with this new team, I didn't realise it, but there was actually a Spurs scout and a Liverpool scout were both watching the training that day. And the kind of the, the rumour goes or the story goes that because both scouts who were standing next to each other chatting saw me playing, and then because the Spurs scout was about 25 years younger than the Liverpool scout and they both tried to make their way around to my dad and the Spurs <laughs> scout got there quicker and, and had the first conversation. So, yeah, it, it was it really was just pure by luck and chance that these two scouts happened to be watching my training that night. And, and very quickly I went over to Spurs and, and that was really the, the start of my association affiliation with them. I went all the way through to making my debut at at Spurs in 1997, um, up front alongside Teddy Sheringham in the Premier League. So, yeah, it's funny how, how these things happen. Definitely. And obviously, we, we talked there about what a difficult place it was in the 1980s in Belfast. But did you find different challenges in, in moving away at such a young age and, and having to be sort of reliant on yourself and, and in this sort of alien environment? Absolutely. It's It's... It's a really, really difficult thing to do to leave your friends and family and go off in search of this dream and goal that, that I'd always had of I wanted to play, you know, professional football, but to be honest, I didn't really fully appreciate what that meant. 
I suppose I just watched the the players playing on TV and thinking, oh, I'd love to be doing that, but not realizing that it was the amount of dedication and application it took, as well as all of the sacrifices that you needed to make. And, and there's probably no bigger one than moving away from all of your friends and family at 16 to go and pursue your dream. Yeah, and it, it's a it's a game that chews people up and spits them out, doesn't it? And I suppose it's it's a chance that you can't turn down, but equally, oh, there's a lot of people who don't end up making it. So it, it is it is that, isn't it? It's a big it's a big risk to take. Um, did you get much support from Spurs at all? Like, did you feel that, that the academy are they were they good in how they looked after the young players? I don't think it's anywhere near what they did today or what they do today. I know that there's the the whole revolution of the triple P in academy football and, and that just probably highlights what wasn't there whenever we came across in, in the 90s. And, and when I say we, there was three other Irish players plus a Welsh lad who all came up into the youth team at Spurs in the, in the, in the mid-90s and joined you know all the rest of the English lads who were there. So it was something where they looked after you in terms of they put you into some digs and you know you had a place to stay they made sure that you know they paid for the for the landlord and lady to you know to feed you for your breakfast and your dinner every evening and have a have a nice room to stay in and basically just generally make sure that you were safe and i suppose that would have been the extent to it because outside of that they never checked on you they never did anything they never helped you in any other way outside of the training and when I say training we were there from you know first thing in the morning making sure that all the kits there and, and making all of the yeah in terms of the first team had everything they needed for their training sessions and then obviously afterwards cleaning up and tidying up and making sure everything was put away but that was that was it really there's you know <laughs> I, I think about the the pastoral car that goes on now in, in academy football and and I know this from the from the work I've done as a sports psychologist for seven years and two years with with Norwich City and five years with Crystal Palace and seeing the difference of what the players have access to in terms of you know the nutrition and the psychology and the you know even like I know teams like Chelsea do cooking classes and stuff for these players to try and help them um, become independent because they're very quickly going to be moving into their own places so yeah, it was night and day, and but I suppose it's it's a bit like growing up in Belfast. You just think it's normal because that's all you know. So you just kind of get on with it, and hopefully you you were able to survive it. Yeah. So ju- just on the work you've done at Bristol Palace and Norwich, um, obviously you've you've took a lot of time out to to retrain, and you've got a master's degree in sports psychology. But when you're dealing with younger players, how much do you sort of take? Take sort of lessons from when you came through a youth team at a Premier League club and, and apply that. Well, it's I suppose it's not really necessarily using my lessons because they might come in and, and that might be appropriate at some times. And that's I think more my playing experience was just a really good way to build rapport. You know, to be able to talk in the same language as as the young players coming in. You know, sometimes if you you know if you were able to in, in any of my sessions and delivered to be able to put in a photograph of you know me and who I played against on on the pitch or whether it was a little video of some of the goals I scored you know all of these things just help build the trust and rapport because ultimately the players especially younger players 
you know, they're, they're kind of looking at you thinking, who's this older guy? Because obviously you look like an old guy compared to, you know, any of the younger 16, 17, and even 20, 21 year olds. And to put it in the context, I remember delivering a session and I was talking about, you know, like a, an energetic all-round midfield player, someone who can pass the ball, score goals, tackles, drive at the drive through the midfield. And, and I was like, you know, so you know someone like Roy Keane, the way he just used to be all action, do that. And one of the Crystal Palace players put their hand up and went, Who's Roy Keane? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and at that point I was like, yeah, I need to update my references. <laughs> I need to, I need to change. I just realized who you're speaking to because they didn't grow up with Roy Keane as the best player. You know, yeah. even like Steven Gerrard still wouldn't have been maybe quite on the radar because he wouldn't have been the driving force whenever they were watching it. So it's just it's just the difference of, of building that rapport with players who are on a different level different emotional level mental level they they interact differently you know even whenever you walk into the changing room and the changing room environment for me was just one of the funniest places to be because this the conversations that you had in there were everything from the ridiculous to the sublime and everything in between but there was this humor that was just constantly you know whether you were taking the mickey out of someone or everyone was ganging up on someone just to get a laugh, and then you know it was going to be you the next day. So it was just all part of of the dynamics of a, of a football and change room. And now, whenever I've walked into a young, you know, a younger change room, whether it's an under eighteen, under twenty one, and they're all sitting around on their phone, and hardly anybody's speaking, and it's a bit like walking into a classroom, and you know, when the teacher's been out of the room for a minute, and then when you walk in, everyone's a bit like, oh, no one's talking. <laughs> And, yeah. and it's just amazing. It's just a different dynamic. And yeah, I, I, that's why I, you just have to realize that, that the, the younger players coming through just think and feel and act differently. And, and you need to understand that if you want to try and build any rapport. How did that dynamic change for you when you went from the youth team to being on the fringes and making some appearances in the first team? It's really tough. It's really tough because you're 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 still effectively a kid, you know. Even even though I was nineteen, would have been my debut. You know, if you think of what a nineteen-year-old is like these days, would you think would he, they're a fully mature adult? Could you trust them with your life? Could you trust them to do a job and not make any mistakes? And that's kind of probably would be quite a lot to ask of a nineteen-year-old. But when you're playing in the Premier League, that's everything that you need to do. So because this is, you know, this is the best of the best. This is people's lives and livelihoods and millions and billions of pounds worth of business, you know, and you're part of this and, and you need to do your job. So, but of course, technically you could probably do that, but emotionally and mentally you weren't at that level. So it was just such a massive step up and it was really, really difficult to adjust to try and talk to these players, these superstars like a Teddy Sharon and, or you know, a Jurgen Klinsmann or a David Ginola or Les Ferdinand, guys who'd been at the very top of their game for so long, and then suddenly you have to try and come in and, and treat them as an equal and as a peer, and it's just very, very difficult to do. Yeah, I can imagine it. It's you've got to prove that you deserve to be there, but at the same time, you are stood next to Sheringham and Ferdinand, two world-class footballers, and you're kind of thinking, "Well, I don't want to mess up here." I imagine that that the tricky place to find yourself was yeah. there any particular older player that you remember being really good with yourself teddy was the best example i can give you honestly uh, i i just have highest respect for that guy in, in every way 
you know, even before I made my debut when I was 19, and obviously, you know, that I think just playing up front, whoever you played up front with on your debut, you'd probably have a special bond with anyway. But, you know, I took it back three years before that. When he was, when I arrived in 1994, it was the same summer and on the same first day as Jurgen Klinsmann. So after the 94 World Cup, Jurgen Klinsmann joins us and I'm sitting in the same room as Jurgen Klinsmann because effectively he signed, the press wanted him to train with somebody so they could get some photographs. The first team weren't back yet after the World Cup, so the youth team went in and trained with him. I remember standing on the pitch, training next to Jurgen Klinsmann. The lads are buzzing. They're absolutely delighted because they're training next to a World Cup winner. And I'm sitting looking at this guy going, oh my God, I'm terrified. Because, you know, with my brain and my belief system that came across from Belfast, I had this probably not realizing at the time, but this inferiority complex, you know, just thinking there's no way I will ever be a professional footballer, a first-team footballer, or an international footballer if what I need to be like is Jurgen Klinsmann because he's just in another universe. So <laughs> it's so funny whenever you, when you have that kind of massive jump in terms of what you think you need to get to. But then, you know, once preseason started and, and the first couple of weeks of, of the season, my first season happened. People like Teddy Sheringham was coming into the dressing room, coming into the canteen, sitting down next to you, chatting away. Right, wee man, how are you doing? Do you have a good weekend? What have you been up to? And you're thinking, this guy's like a golden boot winner. You know, he, he'd already been like one of the best players in the Premier League by that stage. He's, you know, he's, he's the top earner at the club. He's, you know, driving, you know, the best car you can imagine in the car park. And you're just thinking, wow. What what a guy! What a nice guy! And then he go out on a Saturday and be the best player on the pitch as well. So to have that um, affection for such a world class superstar, and then be able to make your debut with him, you know that just probably says all you need to know about him. Yeah, definitely. We, we've had a few people mention Teddy on the show before, and I think the fact he made nearly a thousand games for a club and country tells you all you need to know about. His attitude towards the game, he did everything in the right way. And just on what you were touching before about almost having that imposter syndrome, we've we've had a few guys on the show who've been at Man United or they've been at big clubs and they never quite made it. And they sort of said to us, it wasn't because we weren't good enough, it's because we almost didn't believe in ourselves. We didn't have the mentality to to be a footballer. And that sounds a little bit like what you were you were touching on before, and I know you put a lot of focus now into a lot of your work around mentality. So when it came to that time when George Graham let you go, how did you take that news? How did you react to it, or did you already have your next move lined up? No, I absolutely didn't have a next move. I thought I was you know going to be at Spurs for life. <laughs> That's how naive I was. <laughs> but it was whenever. I kind of realized that, you know, there was the way he acted with me, the way he was always kind of making comments about my height, the way he was, you know, always, I, th I thought that I was doing enough, as in, for instance, I was the top goal scorer in the reserves, you know, with all of the other sort of the first team players who needed to play in the reserves. And yet I was the top goal scorer and he just never put me in the first team. So I kind of was starting to see the writing on the wall after a while, but then whenever he did, Tell me that it was that I needed to move on. It was a case of scrambling around and thinking, right, okay, where do you go from here? And, and very fortunately, uh, we had a, a tutor at the time who was who was teaching us our, our kind of schoolwork that we're still going through. And he said, oh, why didn't you why didn't you speak to Brian Hamilton? You know, former Northern Irish man, and and he's up at Norwich. He's the manager there. 
And I, listen, I'll be completely honest, I didn't know Brian Hamilton was the manager of Norwich. I didn't know Brian Hamilton. And, but I got in touch with him, got his number, gave him a call. And he's, he said, yeah, happy to come up, happy to come up, Paul, and, and we'll have a look at you for a couple of days and, and go from there. And very fortunately, after a couple of days, he offered me a one-year contract, and that was the kind of the next, the next chapter in, in the career. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, myself and Danny are both Tramia fans, and Brian Hamilton was a bit of a legend at Tramia. I think he ended his career there. Okay. In, in terms of, the, just to go back to, to George Graham saying, making comments about your height, how frustrating is that? Because it seems to be an issue that's gone on within football where players are deemed not tall enough or not big enough. And I suppose the game is getting stronger and faster in the in the modern world. But, I mean, Messi's been the best player in the world for years, Maradona. There's always these examples of smaller players who are technically the most gifted. And it seems to be that they get this, dismissed a lot of young players because of the stature. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's 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 a bit of a sort of a weak excuse to be honest. It's you know it, as you just said, it's it's not the height that is the reason why someone isn't good enough. You know that your height, unless you're a centre half, and the ball keeps getting lobbed in and the centre forward keeps winning the headers. You know that probably or maybe as a goalkeeper if you kept getting chipped. You know there, there's very few things in football that it's based on your height. You know the, I'd say the large majority is about your technique. And that I suppose that might come second if you don't have the physicality to keep up. So that that's that's all the different details. Listen, if you had said, I don't think you're fast enough to play in the Premier League, I would have gone, absolutely. I'm not the fastest player here. I'm not the fastest player in the world, and I don't think that I'm, you know, particularly that's my that's my strong point. So and if that's what you want, you know, that's fine. But the the, the base it on your height, I just think is it's such a weak excuse. So. It probably strengthened, going back to the Brazilians piece from earlier, probably strengthened my resolve to say it's nothing to do with height. It's just about whether I can score goals or not. And then whenever you go up to Norwich and suddenly you get an opportunity to go and play up there and you start scoring goals, then you realise actually it's not the height at all. It's it's just whether you can do the job that you're being asked to do. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, I was I was born in the, in the 90s, Paul, so I, I remember watching you play as a player that was sort of the year I got into football, early 2000s, all the way through. And it was only sort of doing research about your career that you sort of saw how much work you did off the pitch to sort of improve yourself, research mentality, all about getting the edge. And was that something that was always instilled in you or was there sort of a moment in your career where you thought, I need to do this to be the best version of me? Yeah, there's there's a couple of different parts of this answer. And this is where it's real. This is where it gets really difficult, okay? Because one of the things that I've done in the last ten years is, as you mentioned earlier, is doing my masters in psychology, and really all that did because I'm I'm not an academic. I left school at sixteen. I did my degree distance learning in sports science, and then did my masters distance learning. So we'd never identify as an academic. Didn't enjoy it. Probably the only thing that it really gave me that is beneficial to me is an understanding of cause and effect. So, and what I mean by that is if a situation or an event happens, what is the resultant effect of that? And if something has happened, what has caused it? So once you start trying to break down these kind of uh, different factors and different facets in an equation, you start to realize that there are so many 
there are so many different events and and aspects of what can impact the outcome. So whenever you're talking about why did I do what I did, it's really difficult to answer. But if I were to try and sum it up in two simple answers and very, very simplistic, one is my dad was a voracious learner. He probably didn't realize he was, but because he loved learning, because he had this enthusiasm for learning, that I'll give an example. He would walk across, sitting on the sofa one evening, he would just walk across to the, the bookcase in the living room. And I don't know if you had this growing up, but there was these Encyclopedia Britannicas. And you just go across, pick up a book, and just start reading out of any subject of whatever was in that page at the time. And then because he was fascinated by learning, he'd then go, Paul, come on, look at this. Isn't this amazing? And just say it was the, the distance to the sun. And he'd go, oh, look, look how far that is. Imagine trying to trying to get your head around that and then thinking your son's only, we're only one solar solar system within a massive uh, galaxy and then one galaxy out of billions in the universe. And you're going, wow, that, that's really interesting. And then because of the way he described it, you're thinking, that's amazing. And then that almost must have passed me through osmosis that I then became really interested in learning. So whenever I had this role and career of a professional footballer, my attitude was, how can I learn how to be better? Kind of technically, that will probably just naturally keep improving because I'm training every single day. Physically, I'm probably not going to do much about it. But the one big area that I just thought that I have very little knowledge in and I would love to improve it was around the psychology, the mental performance, the mindset. And once I started going down that route of how do I get better from a mental point of view, that completely took my career in another trajectory. And, and so that is, I think, the two different ways that one was through that wanting to learn that rubbed off from a dad. And then once I started going down this route of, of learning, I then read a book which completely changed my life because it just opened my eyes to this possibility that, you know, you don't need anybody else to come and help you because pretty much you have everything you'll ever need for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's brilliant. So as you say, it all goes back to that attitude, isn't it? The attitude to want to learn. And then if you dissect that again, finding something that then interests you, because it always just seems that if you're interested in that subject, it doesn't always feel like learning because there's a genuine push there. But some people just don't respond to sitting in a classroom and being told something and then remembering it and putting it down in a test. Yeah. Never feels like that is what learning is. But if your attitude is, I want to better myself, and then you find out, well, what avenue can that take me down? It sounds like what you've done. You, you can you can start appreciating the journey that you've been on and hopefully what other people can do as well to, to better themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So... Um, if we look at sort of mentality and we, we discuss strong mentality, what, what do you think that means or what does that mean to you? And I want to come from like a, from a sporting angle here. What does st strong mentality mean when you're playing sport? I suppose I would put it down to what's your objective? What are you trying to achieve? That, that's the normally the starting point with, with anything when it comes to sport. You know, everybody enjoys football because they go out and play it. Uh, you know, they run around, kick a ball around, score some goals or not. But ultimately, it's because we're trying to achieve a certain win, whatever it is, a certain performance level. And, and I think the strong mentality that you're talking about comes from no matter what the objective is, we're going to do it regardless of what happens. And 
that is really, really difficult because probably human nature wants us to take the path of least resistance. And if we want to do as little as possible for as much as possible, then that doesn't really um, become congruent with working harder, doing more, overcoming obstacles, dealing with setbacks that most people would give up from. So that kind of strong mindset or mentality is uh, a, probably a progression or a combination of all those things so that no matter what happens along the way, you still are focused on achieving that outcome, whatever that may be. And it seems to be now that there is more emphasis on on psychology within the game about getting that extra 1% because all those 1% added up, it, it makes a huge difference. There's so much emphasis on winning now. Um, why do you think, do you think football's almost been catching up uh, with that side of the game? It seems to be something that's been a lot more prominent over the last 10, 15 years uh, compared to maybe more individual sports where you can just focus on a singular individual like a someone who's playing golf or an Olympic athlete who's just got themselves and the, the track ahead of them, uh, for example. Yeah, I think, I think football in, in loads of ways is is leading the way. I, I think, you know, if you look at the the analysis now, the, the kind of the, the speed of, of players, the athleticism, the, the fitness levels, you know, there are loads of different areas of football that are probably, you know, world-class leading leading how other sports probably aspire to be. But I think if you were specifically talking about the mental approach to football and the, I'd probably say the more formal learning for footballers, then I think that's where you're, you're really seeing the downfall. And, and, you know, they've got such a massive amount to catch up on. And, and for instance, I was, I was interviewed yesterday by a, by a doctor at um, Loughborough University. And he was talking about leadership and sport. And he was he really was trying to draw out of me what kind of lessons that I learned along the way and you know who would have been given those lessons in terms of a, of a formal framework. And I went, to be honest, we didn't really get anything. <laughs> it was just it was just the manager coaching us on the pitch every day, and that's it. You know, so the, the fact that I needed to go off and go and sought sought out a sports psychologist to go and see because I thought, well, maybe I might should be working on my psychology because it's the big area that, you know, that we're not doing anything on. So I'll go and do that myself. And out of a nearly 20 year career, um, Norwich actually, so it was, it was the same club did it twice. No other club did it, brought in a psychologist for a year at a time. So when you think about it, it, it it's just, you know, failed miserably in terms of trying to improve all the different areas of performance and as you say it is catching up but still it's you know i would say probably now still not every Premier league club would have a full-time sports psychologist and they have all of the resources that you'd need then go into the championship i'd say phew, imagine dropping down the numbers again then go into league one league two and just they'd probably say they don't have the resources to do it but it's not that they don't have the resources to do it it's that they're choosing to spend the resources on something else and that's where when you see other, you know, other sports like rugby and I'm good friends with a guy called Leon Lloyd that played for Leicester Tigers and, and England rugby. And he talks about all the different people that, you know, that they would have seen people, coaches would have brought in for them to try and improve and just increase their knowledge base. 
you know, anything from like the SAS through to, you know, academic leaders through to business leaders, all of that stuff was happening in other sports and in football. We just weren't getting any of it, or at least I wasn't getting any of it. And often with the psychology in sport, it, it's all about, it's driven for performance, it's driven for results and, and to win. Do you think football does enough from general mental health side of things? So there's obviously a lot of emphasis on physical conditioning, but not often mental conditioning. And there's been a lot recently in recent years about sort of breaking down barriers and improving mental health of, of men of all different sort of age groups and uh, different parts of society. Did any of the football clubs you played for any ever make sure you were okay as Paul McVay, the person, and not so much the footballer? No. No. Just as a simple answer is no. There's, there's, the, the only way that you could just you could try and give them. That's not even giving the club credit. It's, it's just certain individuals within the club. So, for instance, there was a there was a lady called Val Lemon who was the the managers, you know, kind of like uh, executive assistant or PA. And, and she was there every day for all the years that I was at Norwich, nearly eight years. Now, she pretty much became my therapist because after training every day, I'd be in speaking to her because I just loved the way she was and how she chatted. And, you know, she chatted about other things that are completely irrelevant to football. And then I was doing other work and she was helping me with that. So, and in those conversations, she would have been asking me, oh, hi, is everything, you know, do you need anything? How are you doing away from this? And and that was just completely her off her own bat, just saying, you know, how are you as, as an individual? Nothing to do with the football side of it. But then that was probably more to do with her motherly nature as well, because she had two sons that were around our age at the time. So that's that's not the football club putting in things in place to try and help you or to, uh, you know, be concerned or show concern about your mental health or you as an individual because I, I think it's really it's really difficult to to talk about that subject because on one side I think it should have been there and it hopefully it's there and I but obviously I have no experience because I don't work in, in professional football today. But the other side of this is it's so ruthless the environment that it's then that the question of if you were more sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, if you were able to reduce those barriers and to stop letting people in, would they, would that then become almost like a, uh, a difficulty for you? Because like we just talked about earlier, George Graham thought it was too small, you know, didn't think I had what it takes, move on, move on. And because in football, you're constantly getting that rejection. If you're getting the rejection and taking it personally, then that's not a good combination because very easily you could give up. And I think you said earlier was it that you know football's ruthless and kind of chews you up and spits you out. So one of the ways to kind of protect yourself from that is almost to put up these barriers to say, well, okay, I'm not. I don't really care what you think, and and if you don't want me, then I'll go somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. But that's it's quite mercenary, isn't it? And quite kind of uh, emotionless when, of course, that's not the case because everyone does take it personally. They just don't really want to show that they have. It's exactly that, yeah. It almost, I think, the reason men struggle with it so much is because it appears to be a weakness coming forward and, and saying that I'm struggling. And we had Chris Iwaluma on the show, who you'll probably be aware of. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and he was saying that when he was, um, I can't remember what club he was at, but he was actually on anti, I think he was at Charlton at the time, he was on antidepressants, but too scared to tell his manager because he thought he wouldn't play him in a game. And when it gets to that stage, you're sort of taken aback and you go, people look at Chris and go, he's a big, tough, strong guy. Um, he'll be fine. And he was really struggling be, behind the mask he was wearing. And I suppose if I go into my day job and I'm struggling, I can get signed off by a doctor. I can go to the HR team. Footballers, uh, often it's glamorised the lifestyle they live, but they don't always have the protection they probably require and what everyday people have. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's... It, it, listen, I still don't think the the answer is there, and I still don't think the the processes are there as well because it's you know it's it's a little bit like you kind of need to be battle hardened just to get through it. If if you start, um, if you can, uh, what's the word? If you have that weakness, and then you not not even the weakness. I don't even think that's not even the right word. Like you're just talking about Chris. If he had shared that with the team, you know, it it probably would have been made him closer with the team. But it was the fact that he didn't even feel like he was capable of saying that. And and then it also goes back to it's almost like urban myth about when you remember the story about Stan Collymore going in to speak to John Gregory at the time, whenever, you know, he was he was suffering with depression when he was playing for Villa. And he went in and told his manager and he's like, you know, how can you be depressed on the money you're earning? And you just you just think that's almost a bit like that scared the life out of you to think, well, if that's what happened with Stan Collymore, who was, you know, one of the best players in the country at the time, then it could easily happen with me. So yeah, I, I wish I had a I wish I had an answer for you. I think this is probably why the this is podcast is so important and also why, you know, this issue is so so necessary and crucial to deal with because it's such a delicate subject and so difficult to come up with uh, the right, yeah, the right help and the right the right process to be able to deal with people who are struggling in such a ruthless environment. Paul, do you wonder if maybe part of the problem might be that football and and I suppose you could extend it more broadly to other sports almost conflates mental health and like mentality as as almost being like the same thing when they can sort of coexist as, as different things. Say that again. Tell me, tell, ask that question again. I, I often wonder if one of the problems is, is that obviously we spoke there about kind of sports psychology and there being more sports psychologists that get involved in football clubs. But often that's kind of focused around improvements in performance and output. Yeah. Yeah. But is there maybe an issue that football clubs think, okay, well, we've, we've ticked, the, the the psychology box whereas mental health is an entirely different thing altogether and maybe the, the sort of conflating the two things is the same thing and that might be part of the problem yeah yeah so so if I was to think about the the companies that I work with you know that that's that probably is a really good example to be able to say that you know massive multinational organizations will be catering for all of the different areas of co- across mindset, psychology, and mental performance. And, and at one end of the spectrum, I'd probably put my work and the stuff that I do with, with teams and organizations, which is how to improve their performance, how to improve what they're doing, how to you know, get the best out of it and maximize potential. At the other end of that spectrum, it's more dealing with the struggles, the issues, the ability to kind of, you know, to help people 
who aren't going in to perform, but it's not because if they aren't maximizing performance, it's because they've got mental health challenges. And companies, and especially bigger companies, do that really, really well. And because that's not my skill set, because it's almost like you, I don't have the training. So even though I did my my studies in, in psychology, I'm not a qualified therapist or someone who could help someone with mental health issues. But it's exactly what you're saying. It's It's probably the lack of understanding that they're taking anything that happens in the mind and just kind of condensing it into one area and going there. We've, we've kind of done a little bit for that, realizing that they don't actually have anywhere near as much support as what they could do in football clubs. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose then that goes on to my next question, which would be about obviously year on year, football you know is, is the sport that we can to concentrate on but all sports are, are doing it they're obviously striving to get better and better either you know through sort of performance matters or be it nutrition or you know psychology and all those type of things do you think that kind of at the very sort of elite level of sports do you think it's healthy that kind of constant strive for almost perfection um I don't know if healthy is the right word. I think it's necessary if you want to compete to be the best. I think it's there's a there's just a drive in athletes, winners, people who no matter what anyone else is doing, they want to be better. So again, it probably comes back to human beings as a species have just an amazing amount of tolerance that we can put ourselves through so much so many hardships and through such difficulties if we really 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 want to achieve whatever it is we're working towards and you know you could probably go to the other end of the spectrum and put you know people like here in the SAS who can just go through things that you think how is that person even still able to speak and, and deal with stuff because they've gone through such amazingly difficult things and, and but it's the same with football and athletes and anybody who wants to be the best they're, they're pushing their bodies and they're working towards something despite of all the things that they're sacrificing and losing out on and a lot of the times that kind of mental health issue just isn't even in the equation you know that people are a bit like I just need to work towards this now because they believe that's what they want to do and that's what their goal is and I kind of I'm not even prepared to deal with and put up or even understand what this is going to mean in 5, 10, 20 years' time. I just want to work on this right now, today. And do you think then, obviously, if you're sort of, as we say, someone who's an elite-level sports person who's always striving for something, or they, you know, they're aiming to, to be the best, do you think it's it's hard to be... I'm trying to think of a better way than happy, but I, I suppose, is, is, it, is it easy to be content if, as a as a professional athlete, with that, I can all, I can imagine it being like you know, if you're say Harry Kane, at one point his aim would have been getting in the Tottenham first team, then it would have been getting in the England team, and then it's okay, can we, what can we win with this? And then it's like, is anything ever good enough? If you know what I mean, are you ever going to be satisfied? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. It's it's the toughest it's the toughest thing to do because you know it's a bit like should you ever be happy if you lose mm. and if you win can you ever be happy because you've won even though you think that you could always do better 
So this is this is yeah you're kind of you're you're almost just highlighting the mindset of a winner, and very put it this way: people who have different expectations and different standards can be, and I probably would have put myself in that category. That I realized whenever I'd worked with our sports psychologist called Gavin Drake, and he. Uh, showed us or or shared with us uh, a model of of how we think and and how we're in this cycle of thinking constantly. And whenever you realize that how you think drives your feelings and how your feelings drive your behaviors, and of course, what we're doing every single day is going to have a massive impact on our outcomes in our lives. So if I have an outcome in my life, such as I win the match, well, then to continue this thinking loop in this thinking cycle I'll then go home and think about that match and I'll either think about it that I did well and I'm happy or I'll think about it that it didn't do well and I'm not happy but then of course the opposite is well just because you won does that mean that you should be happy or if you lost you should be sad because that's a little bit simplistic and almost a bit infantile because when I realized that even if I didn't have a good game even if we didn't win that doesn't mean that I need to be sad or beat myself up, or have a go at myself, or you know, almost you know, have this little internal dialogue where I'm yeah. I'm just giving myself a beating inside, and then I'm probably not nice to be around. Probably don't enjoy my weekend, and all of this is all happening in my head based on social beliefs that if you win, you're happy, and if you're sad, if you lose, if you're sad. So I then realized, well, you know what? No matter what happens in the match. I can go home and I can enjoy my weekend and I can see my family, I can see my friends, do whatever, and I can decide how I'm going to be. But that's because I had a probably a an insight into human functioning. But most people just react as opposed to responding to the situations in the world around them. And whenever you realize that you have a choice, no matter what happens, and then like this pandemic is a perfect example, during this pandemic, loads of people have struggled, loads of people have lost their jobs and loads of bad things happening all around us and people have lost their lives and, and loads of terrible, terrible things. But there is also your choice in how you respond to everything that's going on around us. And because that's kind of just been so ingrained in me since I learned this in my mid-20s, the pandemic for me, even though it's it's not, I've lost loads of business and loads of opportunities, I still realize that I need to get my mindset, my thinking, my approach to each day into a really healthy and constructive place so that I can still go on and work towards what I'm trying to achieve in my life. And if I were to blame my life for the last six to eight months on the pandemic, then I'd become the victim. And I don't really think I suit being a victim because I love being accountable to how I think and how I feel, not what's going on around me. Yeah, I suppose it's like being a an active participant rather than a passive participant in like in your own life, isn't it? If you sort of as you say, you've got you've got kind of control to a certain extent over what not not always what happens, but how you react to what happens, I suppose, isn't it? And and it's not even a certain extent. I have one hundred percent control over how I react to what happens. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, if you get your, as you say, if you 
think about it in the right way and you kind of train yourself to believe I can control how I feel about this. I've just got to remind myself of that so that it doesn't happen to me. I can participate in, in the outcome of that event. And, and, and that's what psychology teaches us. And, that, and that's why it's, it's not me as an individual saying this, you know, this is, this is research and this is uh, accepted in the field of psychology from, you know, incredibly bright people who've been studying this for a long, long time that they have worked out and the whole field of psychology is in agreement on this, that how we think drives how we feel. And if you realize that, then no matter what circumstance you're in, whatever way you're thinking about it, you're going to then have that subsequent emotional response. So I'll give you a really extreme example and another reason why I love this field of psychology. I read a book a, book a few years ago called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was by, by a doctor, it was actually, I think he's a psychiatrist called Viktor Frankl. And this was written after his experience in Auschwitz, in the prisoner war camps in, in Nazi Germany. And he was observing people that even in this most horrific, horrendous circumstance, people were choosing how they responded within the concentration camps. So for instance, even though they were getting these little molecules of food, some people were taking them and eating them. Other people were taking them and giving them to their children or giving them to their elderly parents they're in there with. So what, what he really took from that was that no matter what situation you're in, we can always think and decide how we're going to feel, which is ultimately going to drive how we behave and respond to the situations and circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you wrote a book in, in 2013, which is called The Stupid Footballer is Dead. What was... What was that about, Paul, and what kind of prompted you to, to write that book? So I'd always had the the dream, going back to being quite goal-oriented, I'd always had the dream that I wanted to write a book. But again, just as a, hopefully as a little bit of a bit of motivation for anybody who might be in that category or or sitting here listening to this thinking, do you know what, I'd love to have written, written a book or I'd love to write a book in the future. I was like that all through my 20s. I just had no idea what they're writing about, how you can actually write a book, what you need to do to, to create that process. And and when I realized that the title, The Stupid Footballer is Dead, it, it came from the fact that these sweeping generalizations that I used to come across all the time of people having this incredibly low bar that was set for footballers of going, you know, you're quite bright for a footballer. So it was like the worst backhanded compliment ever. You That's know, so like, aggressive. It's like, it? it's, yeah, it's like, you're not all that stupid. I'm like, <laughs> all right, thanks. Uh, uh, that's, I'm, I'm, and, you know, I'm, I'm quite, you know, egotistical. So I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a great compliment. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, but but it's, more, it's more to do with, I love the title because I thought of it years ago just because I realized that, you know what, there's so many really bright, astute people in football. And the fact that people think that footballers are stupid just made me think, oh, right, I need to write this book just to show that it wasn't. And, but, it, but it was ultimately about there's so many different areas that are going to impact football, but I kind of broke it down into three areas. And it was to do with you know the ability that you need to get to a professional level. And I used to think it was natural ability, but actually the more I've read and researched, the more I think... And I'm, and I'm of the opinion that it's just ability that's developed at a professional level. As in, Tiger Woods wasn't born as a world-class golfer. 
but mm. you know, the story of why he got there and same with the Williams sisters, etc., etc. So that's the first pillar of success of being a professional footballer. The second is the physicality. And again, probably not a lot you can do about that. I was in the youth team with Peter Crouch and me standing next to Crouchy in the youth team. <laughs> <laughs> and then whenever he came to Norwich and we're playing in the first team together and, and still seeing the difference whenever I scored that goal about Walsall and he celebrates and he's not even in the footage of the camera because <laughs> his head's out of the shot. Um, so you can't do a lot about that, but you can improve a bit. And then the last part was all around the mindset and psychology. And that's where I thought, you know what, this is the single biggest differential I see in people of whether they're successful in life or not, whether they're happy in life or not, whether they are working towards the life of their dreams or not, the psychology is the biggest differential. And so when I thought that that's the, the one area that I really love, then that's why I wanted to write a book on all the different facets of that, that particular pillar of success. I think I agree. I, the title's great, and that's it. It, it really caught my eye. And for us, having been, we've been doing this podcast now for about four or five months now, and we've we've interviewed maybe about twenty five, thirty sort of current and, and former players. And what's I mean, we're all the massive football fans, and and like it, it's always been one of those bugbears of mine of people who've you know that stereotype of footballers not being particularly bright. Because I always just thought, well, it doesn't really make much sense for. For, for 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 this group like quite quite significant group of people to just all not be very clever because it doesn't really it, you know they come from such a cross-section of society it doesn't really make any sense for that for that to happen and then yeah. there's also that kind of of you know footballers are all are all um not very nice people and all this and all that and you know arrogant and all the rest of it and then what's been really nice for us is that's been one of those things where i mean like i really hope that when we speak to these footballers they're not all stupid not bad and it's just gonna <laughs> prove all those things right but thankfully i'd say almost every single person i can't think of anyone we've spoken to who, who i've thought oh you're not very clever or you're not very nice everyone's been lovely dead friendly really generous with their time and the thing that's probably surprised me the most is how kind of um how well people are able to speak that how well a lot of the footballers we've spoken to are able to convey their thoughts which the thing I thought that might be the problem is that maybe because people haven't sort of left school at 16 to, to go and be a footballer, so maybe they've not been able to develop that communication skills that you might have got from, from further education, but it's not the case at all. And that's just been like a really nice thing for, certainly for me to, to, to kind of have that thing of being like, I knew that, that, I knew all that was nonsense and it's been proven. Do you know what I mean? From, from doing this. So, yeah, no, I agree that, that with, the, the title of your book, I thought, I think it's 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 spot on because it's just not true at all. Um, you just moving on to before we we obviously started recording, Paul. You were when you had the camera on, you were in a, a you were in your Crystal Palace shirt. So what is yes. it you're you're doing at Palace at the moment? No, it was it was um, the work. I was there for five years, and it was it was all around the sports psychology because. I kind of, <laughs> you never believe this. I was working as a sports psychologist for seven years and I kind of thought, you know what, I can't keep living off these playing days, and these playing experiences and, you know, giving references for Roy Keane, who people don't, don't even know anymore. And, and whenever I realized that I needed to go off and do some studies and get some sort of academic qualifications and credentials and and then went off and studied my master's in sports psychology and then had this brainwave to stop working in sports psychology. So don't, don't really know why, why I decided to do that, but it's, 
it means that I don't no longer work in professional football and now I spend 100% of my time working in the corporate world and, and traveling around the world speaking for different organizations and, and delivering sessions and programs that generally help their senior leadership team work on performance and, and improving the bottom line. And what kind of what prompted you to go into into that kind of line of work then? Uh, well, I just love it. I, I've actually been doing it for 10 years. So when I stopped playing professionally in 2010, I was going back to Gavin Drake, who was one of the sports psychologists who we'd work with as a, as a group at Norwich. He, I didn't realize in, in the days that he wasn't working with us, he was delivering corporate training around the world for all these massive companies. And when I stopped playing, he said, why don't you come and work with me? And because I was working with him for the first few months, delivering some sessions and training programs in the corporate world. And then I came across a keynote speaker and this keynote speaker was charging $10,000 an hour, American guy. And I thought, wow, that's uh, that's really, really impressive. And, and I saw him speak and just, just was so impressed the way that he could walk into a room and literally within seconds have the entire room laughing their heads off and then a few minutes later almost like devastated by what he said and then picking them up again and then just just a master in front of a crowd and obviously why he get paid so much money so i went off the american and went on his course and and learned how to do what he did and that was 10 years ago and you know kind of 10 years later and now it's it's simply the most enjoyable part of my working life to go and share these experiences and these insights with with corporations all over the world because it's it's such a privilege to share the lessons that I've learned in, in the kind of 20 years I had in professional football. And, and now, as my mom says, that I'm going in and I talk about those years in professional football and she's saying, you know, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think, well, I've kind of got the 42, even though you think I'm in my 30s, but I've got the 40, <laughs> 42 now and, and I still haven't got a real job. So I'm, I'm very happy to keep it going for another 20 years or so. We were just trying to butter you up. That was all, Paul. Yeah. We got on your right <laughs> side. I, su- I suppose with that job as well, you probably there's probably stuff that you learn going into different organisations with different backgrounds and different people there, and learning about processes that they kind of use as well. I suppose. Of course, it's 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 so much more uh, structured and formal what they do and how they do it, and and that's great for me to learn because. You know, coming from probably less of a structured background in terms of just getting out onto the training pitch, but then being able to, to formulate that and put it into some sort of framework and methodology is really important for me because when I go into an organization, they need to know exactly what I'm going to do and be able to, you know, show who I've worked with before in the case studies and be able to say, okay, we did it with this group and this is what they were occasionally, sorry, this is what they started at. And this is where we take them to after our 12-month program or after we're mentoring people or delivering sessions. So, yeah, it was, it's it's really fascinating. And, and now it's just a case where that, haven't done it for 10 years, and now I'm starting to deliver keynote speaker training courses where people can come and learn how to do what I do because, you know, I get so many people approach me all the time, especially in football, that when I started this 10 years ago, there was no keynote speakers from the world of football. And even 10 years later, I'm only starting to see people come into this because they're coming on our program. So, you know, but the fact that there have been thousands of footballers before me retiring, even in the last 10 years, loads of footballers retired and none of them have gone down this route of keynote speaking. I'm thinking, why not? It's just, it's just simply representation. If, if nobody can see that someone from their background is doing it, 
then they're not going to choose to do it. But if you speak to a rugby player and say, do you want to do some keynote speaking or do you know anybody who's done it before? They'll tell you loads of names because it's very, very normal in the rugby world. So it's a big part of what I'm doing to try and share that. And then now it's a case of, okay, the speaking side is brilliant and I love it, but I want to impact more people. And so now I'm on a kind of mission to try and get these multinational companies to not only bring me in to deliver sessions for their company, but then to go and start doing work on the ground in these areas. Because as we talked about right at the very start of the conversation, I realize now that I grew up in a conflict zone. I didn't realize it at the time because do you remember I just called it, it was just normal. But of course, growing up in, in a city that bombs go off every single day is not normal. So it's a conflict zone. And so I want to work with companies now who have the ability and the inclination to not only come in and work with their senior executives, but also to help the much less fortunate people who are, who are in the conflict zones all around them. And that, you don't have to go to Mexico or Syria to find those people. You can be find them in, you know, inner city London, Liverpool, you know, anywhere, Paris, wherever you happen to go. So these companies have a footprint across the world and that's kind of, that's my next mission. Welcome back. Still got Ants. I've still got Ryan. Um, I don't know about you, but I thought that was a, that was a really interesting interview with, with Paul there and, and, I mean, easy enough to listen to his voice. Just just delightful. Just an uh, enjoyable experience to listen to him speak. Um, and one thing that, that, that I thought was kind of right at the start of the interview, Paul talks about where he grew up in in Belfast, particularly during during some of the troubles. And I think just to kind of get a bit of a first-hand experience of that, even though he was kind of talking about his childhood being quite normal, it's, it must have been just insane for, for, for people growing up there. And it's I think it, people need to be reminded, don't they, of, of you know, not just people in Ireland but people all over the world growing up in, in kind of war zones yeah it's um, <laughs> when he was saying it was normal that he had like tanks and you know soldiers and that mm-hmm. like when he was going to school just crazy I mean the, the most um, trouble I faced was missing the bus <laughs> to get to school like I, I don't understand how he well I get, I get how he thought it was normal but yeah I, I think I, I, you know the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland were I mean, it's it's still something spoken about today. It's come up a lot more because of because of like the Brexit implications and and it's been in the news quite a lot. Um, it, it's it's one that's just uh, from the outside looking in for us uh, of our age, unless you do a serious amount of reading and and, and understanding the history of it, it's very uh, very tricky to navigate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like as a as a child growing up in those those times. I don't think. I mean, I don't think anyone our age or anyone younger certainly has an appreciation for the fact like you would call it a war zone when mm. it probably for all intents and purposes is. Um, Very much so. Uh, so, yeah, it's at, uh, you know, around those times as well, difficult times during the 80s. Yeah, I, I can't imagine how how um, how that would have felt, but he said, you know, obviously it gave him a bit of resilience, but a community resilience, which I thought was a an interesting interesting yeah, angle I, yeah, towards I it that was interesting yeah, as well. uh, which which i i, I kind of liked obviously you get things born out of you know atrocities and 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 you know bad things that are happening in the world and obviously one of those was was a community feel for like look we're going to help each other out we're going to stick together we're going to we're going to go down those routes and it, it's you know it, it's quite commendable really i think for 
to be able to bring bring a, a person like Paul quite level headed um up through those through those times is, is really good. Um yeah. and then obviously when he when he moves to, to Spurs and he says oh there was tree, trees and and you know no no tanks or no guns or, or anything like that and you're thinking yeah, that's. I, I suppose it probably was a, a, a relief for him to, it, it, you know, in a way, looking back, the fact that he was, he, you know, he was he had the, the, the ability to play football and it, and it kind yeah. of removed him from that circumstance. It's probably quite a, a blessing. There's a, there's a film called 71, which has got um, Jack O'Connell in it, which is about um, some of the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. That's a very good film um, that I would recommend watching to give us a bit of an understanding as to. You know, not so much why it was happening, but you know, kind of what it was like and what what was going on. Um, Paul also talked about a, a book that, that changed his life. He, he didn't name the book in the the interview, but I was doing a bit of googling. I found that the, the name of the book that he was on about was called um, "Awaken the Giant Within," which is by a guy called Anthony Robbins, which is described as a how-to guide to take immediate control of your mental, emotional, physical, and financial life. And as we discussed with our theme, a lot of what Paul was talking about with the how much you can impact your own mental health and how much you can impact your own behavior and how you feel about things which is a really important message for people to be able to take control of that and one of the ways that Paul kind of took control of his own life and took control of his own emotions and and the way that he was reacting to things was that he was fascinated to learn and take on an information and it was sort of picked up from his dad and Ryan you and I have had a lot of conversations I would I think Paul described his dad as having a vivacious vivacious love of learning or vivacious love of of, of reading and I'd probably describe you in that same sort of of, of, uh, of brand you're always someone who's who's looking to learn new information aren't you and it's it's very good for your own mental health isn't it in terms of stimulating your brain to try and learn new stuff yeah I think everybody assumes learning has to be done in a typical classroom style setting and it, it doesn't really and I think that was obviously Paul went on to be very academic and, and did get qualified um, but there's other ways you can learn and often the biggest way to learn is to listen or to read and to have an inspiration in your life like his dad clearly was by by just being interested in things um, which I think goes a long way doesn't it because Paul was obviously very aware from a young age just about everything around him uh, sort of grasped that when he talked how aware he was and conscious of things and took it in his stride quite well um, and I think if you're willing to listen, you'll find more people willing to talk to. And I know that sounds like an obvious thing, but often so many people got a lot to say, uh, but often don't wait to hear responses. They just want to get what they can off the chest. And I think when you stumble across someone who's quite eager to learn more, people actually sort of take that on and go, oh, yeah, well, did you know this? Did you know that? And I think it's quite important, really. Um, he saw that in the canteen, like he said, Teddy Sheringham would sit by him and talk to him, and he was quite in Quite a bit of an inspiration for him, but I imagine he's probably done himself this service there. I don't think Teddy Sheringham would go sit by an 18, 19 year old in the canteen and do what he did if he didn't think he was worth sitting next to and speaking to. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's probably picked that up from from his childhood, as you say, his dad. Um, and I think I think that's a really really nice story, and I think that's probably what's um, motivated his learning in an older in an older life to. to from his early days so I think it's um it's great for anybody who's listening who maybe I mean you, you both went to university I didn't and a lot of people often who didn't go to university think oh I'm, I can't learn anymore I've, I've missed my chance to go to uni it's just not true you, you can find other ways as long as you don't get on a YouTube 
hole and end up on some of these wacky videos that are on there. There's a lot of great resource out there. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, continuing and striving to improve is important. Those wacky videos normally come from you, Ryan, in our WhatsApp group. I can reveal, exclusively <laughs> reveal. Um, we'll be yeah. posting them as well on our Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome our new sponsor, David Icke. Um, but yeah, anyone I think... listening, I, I don't endorse David Icke. <laughs> Not anymore, anyway. I'm not um, even sure I know who he is. Yeah, he just, I, I was going to say Google him, but just don't. It's probably better you don't know who he is. It's, uh, okay. Yeah, it's all quite quite unpleasant. Um, but yeah, so I, I think um, I think Carl Anker, um, back, way back when we were starting these interviews and one of the first ones that we did, he was talking about doing different things, learning different things, hanging around with different people. And, and, and learning certainly is a really good thing for your mental health. It opens up sort of pathways in your brain, which is, I think, how Carl put it. And, and that can be really good for you in terms of, for a lot of number of reasons, but, you know, self-esteem is a good one as well and 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 he was talking about that Paul was talking about that in the interview about when he was a player and maybe you know not knowing if he was he was able to play at that level he was talking about the first training session he did with Jürgen Klinsmann um and he was saying you know as a footballer maybe it's you know it's difficult to show weakness when you're getting rejection because then the, the industry is so ruthless and you've got to kind of compartmentalize things and not focus too much on the negatives because you've got to get back up on that horse and that brings us around really to the theme that we that we had on the episode, which is being sort of being an active participant in your mental health rather than a than a passive participant. And I, you know, I think the way that we kind of we put it in the episode was it, with the interview with Paul was not letting things happen to you. You know, knowing how much you can affect them. And 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 to know that's something that that we've discussed on the podcast quite a lot is you know being able to not just allow things to creep up on you. You know your trigger points. You know the things that are going to make you feel low or things that are going to have you know, issues for you and trying to be, you know, putting roadblocks in place for them almost and solutions so that you can be, you know, as we say, an active participant. Yeah, I think um, I think it comes from experience. I, I wouldn't really go with roadblocks. I'd more go with solutions, like you said. Mm. Uh, I think if you try, from my experience, I think if you just try and block it, it doesn't, it, it kind of yeah. like, it'll break down eventually because you're not really dealing with it. But yeah, to be an, an active participant in it, it's so important. Um, I think we ignore it for so long, which is fair enough because you can't really focus on on it all the time. Um, but, y- you know, you need to be aware of it. And I think that comes from, that does come from experience. So it might take you like one or two bad moments in, in, in your life where, you know, you do struggle. But, you know, when you struggle, you can come out the other side and, and go, hang on, what, what have I learned here? It's almost like kind of like a bit of a rebirth, really. Um, you know, and I think it's it's something that footballers face quite a lot with injuries. Um, I think it's somewhere I remember reading that there was a paper done on when players come back from injuries. It is kind of like being reborn, that kind of like feeling of like I feel fresh and ready to go, and and the mental side of it as well, like feeling in a much better place because they're they're back doing what they can do. So. I think if you can apply those kind of things to, to your mental state as well. You know, there will be times where it is hard if you can come through those times and then go, right, what did I learn? And, and break it down and go, right, hang on, I might not do that next time. Or I might not. It might just be little things like stuff you're eating or drinking or, or anything, or the people that you hang around with. It could be that. It could be the, you know, influences outside, but it could be something that you've gone through as well. So it's just about it learning and it sounds like i'm trying to say you need to go through the bad times you don't need to you just need to be aware of what's happened what if it happened you know what i mean if you yeah if you get the, to what that you point. what you've said there i think is the, the key point you know 
what made me feel that way? Like, yeah. what was it that caused me to feel that way? And what can, you know, can I remove that or can I do something differently about it? And and it's about changing how you feel towards it. I think a lot of the time, um, Ryan was talking there about listening. I think that's a really important point because I think nowadays, for one reason or another, people can get very defensive about things and that can then cause some anxiety on the back of that. And I think knowing that that's something that, that, that that's in place and knowing that you don't have to fall out with people over certain things is is probably quite important i'd imagine ryan that, that that's even more important you'd think nowadays in a in a in a covert world where we're not able to physically have those chats one-to-one yeah and and i don't want to harp on about social media because we seem to talk about every episode but there's more and more platforms to talk but you you say what you want to say and then you walk away from it and often you'll find that people aren't even interested in the response they get um so yeah i think i think that's one of the biggest things i'm looking forward to actually when we can sit around and talk to people again and we talk on here obviously about the impact sport has and often that's like the one place a week where you actually listen to what your mates have got to say do you know what i mean you you do a lot more talking i think them social type of events than you realize especially at half time you can sit there and have a chat to us, everything with you, mate, and all that. I think I think we need that at the moment. I think yeah. there's, there's a huge need for it, and people just probably don't feel like they'll listen to it in the same way. I mean, Zoom's great, and all these different things are great that can connect people, but I don't think people are quite comfortable yet with using social media or social media tools and platforms to do that. And you imagine a lot of people now are having consultations over Zoom or they're that maybe having doctor's appointments over Zooms, it just, it's probably just not the same as looking somebody in the eyes and knowing that they actually physically really care about what you've got to say and in your own well-being. So I think, I think it's hard at the moment, isn't it, for everybody? It really is hard. And you can probably see light at the end of the tunnel now. And for me, that human interaction, I don't think, despite how good technology gets, it can ever really be replaced that like sort of warmth for being in, around somebody who cares about you absolutely and hopefully you know throughout the pandemic maybe people have, have maybe had a little bit of space to, to to step back and learn a little bit about their own mental well-being and and put them in a position potentially to to be more of an active participant as we kind of go back into you know what we would consider an air quotes normal living really you know interacting with people in in the ways that we were used to before covid and hopefully that 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 space maybe at least in one way has given people that opportunity to be able to take a you know a little bit of a step back from from how quickly things work and how much is going on all the time because it's sometimes difficult to get a breather and get a moment to to reflect on yourself and how you're feeling about things and yeah i think ultimately that advice from from paul which was just to be about you can affect the way that you feel about things you can affect the, the way that that you react to things and and it's just about engaging with that rather than and letting it happen to he you. Made that, um, obviously, that is quite an extreme point to land. I think it's from a book he read um, in Auschwitz, wasn't it? Where he yeah, said yeah. that there was people who donated the meals to other family members, and he said that although the outcome was pretty much the same for all of them, they still had an impact. And so, and I think what his point was there is, if you look at that at the most extreme case, in most other cases, then they're nowhere near as extreme as that, and you probably don't think you can make an impact, but you can. And I think what that does is it gives power back in your own hands, doesn't it? It makes you go from feeling like you're helpless to actually thinking a bit of empowerment's good, a bit of self-confidence and self-belief that I can get out of this rut, I can change whatever your circumstances is. If you think you can influence your own well-being, then it's a great start. It's absolutely brilliant start because often I think people just 
just self-loathe and they they feel helpless don't they they think that i can't help myself no yeah. one else can help me and if you do if you do start changing your thinking to think actually no this is this is my life i can take charge of it it's a huge stepping stone to, to getting yourself better yeah 100 percent. i think that's really pertinent advice and um, i'm going to wrap us up there chaps uh, and Ryan, thank you very much for your time, as per usual, and your and your thoughts. Thank you, thank you uh, to you, the listener, for listening. If you have enjoyed today's episodes or any of our previous episodes, we would greatly appreciate it if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and give us a, a five star review and a little rating as well. It really helps us to to grow the podcast and reach new listeners. So that would be very well appreciated. If you have picked up on anything on today's episode that you'd like to discuss or any feedback you'd like to give to us you can find us on twitter at marking underscore man or you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com so we're now going to leave you with paul mcveigh's quick fire answers and we will see you again on friday we have a uh, another episode of under flat caps and bowler hats this time with their uh, motherwell legend huey ferguson so we'll see you again on on friday thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Starting with worst piece of advice you were given as a footballer. <laughs> it's just down to your talent. <laughs> if I, if I'd have taken the if that would have been true, then I'd be playing for Man United right now. But, <laughs> but, but as it is, I'm playing with Ryan this evening. In- <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> it sounds like a dig at Ryan. In fact, it is. I'll have a dig at you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's the funniest footballer you ever played with? Oh, goodness. It's a cross between Andy Hughes, who went on to play for Leeds after he left Norwich City and was assistant manager at Leeds, or Clint Easton, who played at Watford uh, before he joined us at Norwich. But those two guys just simply, you cannot walk into the room without laughing because they're either saying, doing something, or have someone over a barrel straight away. Like, he's just, yeah. Amazing, amazing fellas. He seemed ageless, Andy Hughes. Like he just seemed to play <laughs> for years and years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he was and he was useless everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Well, <laughs> uh, best play. Hopefully, someone's not recording it, Paul. Yeah, hopefully, it doesn't go out. No one else will hear this. Will it? Okay, maybe that defeats the purpose of it. But anyway, uh, best player is. Oh, it's it's so tough. Can I give you like a kind of top three? Oh, yeah, okay. definitely. If you want the answer, and I'm going to give them. Um, it's <laughs> Teddy Sheringham, um, just because just outstanding, and, and the fact that he went on to win a treble and all the rest of it. So Teddy has got to be in the top three. Um, I would then say where's Houlihan? Just simply on ability. Not that he played all his career in the top flight. Not that he won Premier League medals, but. I've just never really seen anyone else do what he did with the ball. So where's Houlihan? Just yeah. a, an absolute magician. And then thirdly, I'm going to put him in here just because he smells really good and was double football <laughs> winner of the year is David Ginola. <laughs> I can imagine he smells lovely. Oh, he smells like, honestly, like a summer's day. <laughs> Just I used to just walk past him and just sniff him just to just to think, oh, just wish I was like David. <laughs> Unfortunately, being a four foot nothing pace the Irish man doesn't quite have the same as this Greek god with you doing adverts for L'Oreal, etc. And then best player you played against. Um, I'll give you two again. Um 
defending wise, it was John Terry, just because he completely just destroyed me in, in every possible way you can destroy someone on a pitch, you know, physically he was better, technically he was better, mentally he was better, he had better crack, he could better put downs, all of that I just was I can't compete and actually up against him. But then walking onto the same pitch as this guy felt like it was just not an equal playing field because it was just after they'd uh, been the Invincibles and it was Thierry Henry. Can I just say, I've seen a picture of you playing next to Cristiano Ronaldo and he hasn't made it onto that list. That, that's impressive. Well, yes, on, <laughs> only, only because he was only a kid when we played against him, so he wasn't very good. So, obviously, if you were to say the best player you know, in, in history, he's obviously right up there, but I can't tell you the 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 mental and emotional impact that Thierry Henry had on me. <laughs> like he, he simply just devastated my confidence of just thinking, how can I ever compete on a football pitch again when this guy is as he's about six foot three, he's as strong as ten men, he runs like the wind, the ball's like stuck to his foot. He's the best player in the Premier League at the time. They've just gone the entire season unbeaten. He kept drifting out to the left-hand side for Arsenal, as you remember he used to do, even though he was a striker. And because I played right midfield and I was doubling up with our right our right back, he just oh, it was it was a horrific experience. And and he was just simply having a great time. I think at one stage he kind of sat down on the field, took his shoes off, put his slippers on, took out his pipe, and sat down in his in his armchair. And still went past me. Have you ever used your status as a footballer to get you into a nightclub? Yes. <laughs> What's the point? What's the point of being well known if you don't? Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. You may as well abuse it because you'll lose it one day. Listen, you... listen, not even lose it one day. I've lost it a long time ago. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't go to nightclubs anymore. But the whole point is that, yeah, it's either here's your choice. You can stand in that queue for 45 minutes and then pay your money to get in, or you can get walk straight in and get in like a bottle of something when you get in there. I'm like, yeah, I think we'll choose yeah. the latter. It's like you've read our questions. So our next one was actually going to be, is there a more handsome footballer than David Genoa? No way, did you really? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I, I don't think, well, maybe not handsome might not be the right word, but I will tell you, whenever I was at Spurs and Spurs were playing United, and it was whenever Beckham was at United, and he actually gets substituted after about 60 minutes. And he was taken off, and, and because I wasn't playing in the team, and I came around to sit in reception, wait for some of my mates before we went home, and Beckham was in there making a call in reception, waiting for his car to put up outside. So it was just around the time whenever him and Posh were getting together, in the late 90s, and obviously he was just going through the roof, and I could not take my eyes off him. So he was on the phone down one end of reception. I'm sitting at the other end of reception. And I'm like, David Beckham's down there. And I'm trying to look away. David Beckham's down there, trying to look away. Until eventually just felt my eyes and my head turning around just to stare at him. So I'm <laughs> staring at him for about 10, 15 seconds. And as he kind of was talking on the phone, where, where, where's the car, where's the car? And then as he turned around, he caught my eyes. And I just kind of turned away quickly. And it was like, he's, I'm not looking at him. And for some reason... I then just get drawn back to looking at him and I just was staring at him and I'm thinking, what, what is up with me? I don't know. But he had, even at that stage, and I suppose he was like a massive deal by that stage, but he had this X factor that I've never really seen. Probably 
before that day or since, but I literally could not stop myself from looking at him. Yeah, there's probably um, there's probably a podcast somewhere where David Beckham saying there was this really weird time where Paul McVeigh was staring at me across the room. <laughs> yeah, in a parallel universe, if if you if you go by the theory that you know if you got like a a bunch of monkeys and asked them to just type on the uh, <laughs> on the typewriter, that eventually they could produce the works of Shakespeare. Then I think that's the that's the parallel universe that, that comes that with what David Beckham would have to be saying about me someday. Norwich City seems to have one of the the sort of most impressive list of of famous fans. So we've got Stephen Fry, Delia Smith, Hugh Jackman, Simon Thomas, Jake Humphrey, The Darkness, yeah. Miley in Class, and I'm going to put Alan Partridge on that list as well. Okay. If you had to pick three of the above for a dinner party, who would you choose and why? Right, so I actually love Stephen Fry. He's fascinated me for years. I've never met him. God, I've never met him because he actually ended up on the board at Norwich and, and Delia, who I have had dinner with, who's just the most lovely woman in the world. Um, I'd love to have Delia and Stephen there. And then I think because I know Simon and Jake really well, and they're two good guys that kind of could see anytime, but I think Hugh Jackman is another one where you just think, why do you have to be so good at everything? Because, you know, he's like the coolest man ever. And, you know, all his, is it the Marvel movies that he's in? Yeah. The X-Men, I think it is. And then you think, right, okay, he's really cool in that. And then because you see him singing and dancing and like Greatest Showman and Les Miserables and all these other movies, you think like, what else is he? And then he's like, and then you realize and you see the, the shape that he gets into for all these. And just like, my God, this guy can just do anything he wants. So, he, yeah, he just seems like a, an incredible person. So, yeah, he would be. I think he'd be a good one to pick your brains over over yeah. dinner time. Is wow. Delia going to be there to cook? Is she, or is she going to be there just as a as a nah, guest? No, I'd have to cook her up. Just Delia's obviously um, paid for a lot of my uh, houses and stuff over the years, <laughs> so I think I kind of owe over one back. So she can she can definitely um, have some dinner whenever I knock up some prawn pesto pasta for. Her. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. Sounds great. 